Welcome to the Most Accurate Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Smith, and as always, TMAP is brought to you by 444.com, where we have the best rankings, tools, and analysis in the biz to help you win your fantasy leagues. Head over to the site, get subscribed before August 15th, and you'll be given a chance to win free entry into the FFPC's main event. Entry into the main event alone is a $1,900 value, and the eventual overall winner will score a grand prize of 500 k all told, this tournament will dole out $3.1 million in prizes, so get subscribed at 444.com and get entered for your chance to win a free entry. Even if you don't win that ticket into the main event, you'll also have the opportunity to win other prizes like 444 shirts and signed jerseys from fantasy stars like Deshaun Watson, Alvin Kamara, Devontae Adams, and others. So if you're not already signed up and want to take advantage of this awesome opportunity, get over to 444, click that red subscribe button in the top right corner, and take your fantasy football game to the next level. Support for this show is also brought to you by Manscaped, the best in below-the-belt grooming for men. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels, and they obsess over their technology development to provide the best tools for your grooming experience. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code TMAP at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com using the code TMAP, like the most accurate podcast. The music on today's show is a song called Ghost Rider by the Lawrence Arms from their new album Skeleton Coast. To hear the song in full and all other music from my episodes, check out the TMAP B-Sides playlist on Spotify, which is linked in the show notes. Now with all that housekeeping out of the way, let's welcome Jim Sonnes to the program. Follow him on Twitter at Jim Sonnes, that's S-A-N-N-E-S, and check out all of his work over at Numberfire, including his new sports betting podcast with Ed Fing called Covering the Spread. Welcome to TMAP, Jim. What's happening? I'm all good, Greg. It's always a delight to get to talk to you for a bit. It's fun to talk some football. Seems like we're going to get NFL this year, even if there's no potentially no college. So uh, at least I'm just excited to talk some football, distract myself for a little bit. So uh, welcoming this discussion. How are you? I'm doing all right, man. Yeah, it is a little sketchy, like getting ready for the season that might not happen and might get delayed. But all signs to this point indicate that we're going to at least start the NFL year on time. And that is exciting. That is something to look forward to. I don't care that there are no fans in the stands. Like, just give me the games. You know, I've enjoyed watching fanless baseball and other sports. And uh, actually, on that note, when, when I reached out to you about doing this podcast, I looked through your Twitter timeline. And I saw that most of what you've been doing so far has been NASCAR and Major League Baseball DFS. I was a little worried that maybe you weren't ready to, to jump into football, but you were kind enough to oblige me. But let's kind of kick things off there. How does your experience analyzing fantasy NASCAR, fantasy baseball, how does that apply to your process or your mentality for analyzing fantasy football? Were there any takeaways from from one to the other? Yeah, I think the big thing for me is finding relevant data because like there's a lot of data we can look at that that is cool, but it doesn't actually matter. And so like what I mean for that is like if we're using NASCAR as an example is you can look to see what Kurt Busch did at Martinsville back in 2004. Like, you can see that data. It's cool to know. It's fun to know. But it serves literally no purpose. So a lot of times you'll hear people talking about, oh, okay, this driver has four career wins or 12 career wins at Dover, whatever Jimmy Johnson's won at Dover. But, like, it doesn't matter because Jimmy Johnson in 2020 is not the same driver he was in 2010 or whatever it may be. And I think the same thing can be applied for Major League Baseball with pitchers changing pitches, uh, changing velocities, changing philosophies. Everything changes there. So for football, I think that you have to look at players in the correct context. And this is, I think, more applicable for DFS in the season. So like, I don't want to cite Devontae Parker's target market share for the full season if his context now is different than his context has been for the full season. And what that does for me is it it does force me to use smaller samples, but I think because those samples are smaller, they are, although those samples are smaller, they still mean more because they take into, take into account the correct context. So that's kind of the big overlap for me between the different DFS sports is trying to identify what is the most relevant data for that player or that driver's specific current context whittle it down to that, and then try to see what I can glean from that data and kind of ignoring the things that don't matter as much that may be kind of, you know, shiny or glittery or things that just don't matter as much. Oh, totally. This, this is a great point. And it's one that, speaking of that sports betting podcast you're now doing, it makes me think of that a lot. Well, you'll see 
stats thrown out where X team is XY and one against the spread in their last, you know, 30 home games against this other team from their division. And it's like, well, 30 home games against this team, like that dates back how many years? What does, what does what happened in 1995 matter now? Right. Yeah, my favorite one was like, the under is hit in six of the last seven times CC Sabathia has made his second start of the season. I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, CC Sabathia is, I mean, this was last year, and it's like, he's about to retire, dude. Like, what are you talking about? This makes no sense. Right, and so that, that point you brought up about contextualizing the game logs or the data or whatever, that's so important because things are changing in these sports all the time. And the NFL is, is definitely like that, right? There's more turnover in the NFL than I would say in a lot of other sports, to be honest. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Uh, I think that like, that's why it is difficult to do it in the NFL because a, you have small samples to begin with. So sometimes when you're looking at a player's target market share with a certain player out, you're looking at like two or three game samples and that can get really shaky really quick. So that definitely makes it tougher. And I think that just with the small sample sizes being what they are, it makes every issue even tougher, but it also makes it more critical to take that context into account too. For sure. That's great. I'm glad that you kind of connected those dots here to start things off. That was a nice little warm up. We are going to talk some news here in just a bit. And then later in the show, we're going to get to my big running back preview uh, for that specific position this year. Speaking of running back, speaking of news, let's talk about the release of Darius Geis. Uh, after some domestic violence charges, he has been let go by the Washington professional football team. And I don't want to talk too much about that. That's super depressing. With that said, let's talk about how this applies to the other players in that backfield. How high is too high to be drafting Antonio Gibson? Yeah, I think that it's hard to nail this one down because there are so much that's unknown with Antonio Gibson. But the reason that I'm okay like kind of being high on him, Greg, is that they have called him a running back from the outset. And I think because he's not changing positions like now on August, you know, whenever it may be, you know, when you listen to this, makes me feel better about the fact that he should be able to transition into the NFL better. And it makes me feel more confident in his role initially. Now, I'm not expecting to be like some sort of workhorse, but I think there is at least we can say there is a path to him being a player who gets early down work, but more importantly, gets targets. Because if you're going to feast on an offense that's just kind of as questionable as Washington's is, you need to get targets. And I think that with Antonio Gibson, with how special he is, with what uh, Ron Rivera has said about him and how they view him, that to me says he can get targets. So right now, I have Antonio Gibson um, as my 32nd running back. He's between Devin Singletary, who I guess I'm lower on than a lot of people, uh, and right ahead of James White. And I think that's where I'm looking at him, where the odds that James White outscores Antonio Gibson are pretty high because James White's median projection is a lot better, but Gibson's high-end projection, like if he were to actually get the role he could potentially get, his high-end projection is so much better than James White's that I'd rather take the lower median projection with Antonio Gibson and take that over James White. So, Honestly, I think you could justify going higher on on Antonio Gibson than where I'm at right now if you have a better read on that situation. But as of right now, I think running back 32 mitigates your risk, but still allows you to potentially get a a piece of that upside, which I do think he does possess. We have a similar view of this. I was a little bit more aggressive. I moved Gibson up to RB28 in my rankings, Mm -hmm. half-point PPR, right between Devin Singletary and Cam Akers. Yeah. And like you said, there's certainly Gibson. There's certainly upside for Gibson to outdo that ranking, right? I think you could justify taking him as high as, say, the RB25 or the RB26 if you wanted. And I would probably rank him as a top 20 running back if I knew he was the lead sure. guy for Washington. But Gibson was barely used as a rusher in college. And his new running backs coach is already giving those cliche quotes about how Gibson needs to work on pass protection and all that. <laughs> Plus, there's plenty of competition there from the other players in Washington's backfield. So let's get to them next. Where should Adrian Peterson be drafted? I think that he needs to – it's kind of the upside discussion again with Adrian Peterson, except it's like the reverse of it. Like if you can get a player who has a path to a ceiling, like we were talking about just Antonio Gibson, then you should probably take that player ahead of Adrian Peterson. I think that one example of that is Alexander Madison. Like it'd be very hard for me to take Peterson ahead of Madison, given the ambiguity around Dalvin Cook and his contract situation. So I think that when I'm looking at it, I want to say, okay – my options are X, Y, Z, and Adrian Peterson's in those options. Do any of those players have a path to a 
top end type season? And if the answer is no, then I'll take Adrian Peterson because I think that the odds that he winds up getting a decent amount of early down work are pretty high. And there is value in that in, especially in a season where we have no idea what's going to happen. So I think once the players who have like legitimate paths to really good ceilings are off the board, that's where I take Adrian Peterson. So for me, he winds up being uh running back 43. That might be too high. I might need to take a look at that, but like I'm looking at the guys behind him and I don't see a realistic path to them just busting out and destroying worlds. So I think I feel pretty comfortable with him there. So basically once the upside is gone, then I'm okay taking guys who have like floor ish production. And I think that Peterson's in that bucket for me right now. I love that you draw that distinction between what his median projection is going to be and what his upside is relative to the other running backs in that range. And once again, we're here in lockstep, another boring podcast where I agree agree (laughs) with the smart guests that I've brought on. I've got AP at RB 41 at the end of a running back tier that features some other goal line specialists like Jordan Howard, Sony Michelle, Zach Moss, but I've got Peterson behind those guys mostly based upon age, declining production. And while I could see him being a value relative to where he's going to go in most drafts, I just don't see that upside with Peterson to take over and be a high usage player. So even if he is that highest ranked running back on my board when I'm on the clock and I and I want to draft an RB, I'm likely to pass over him in my drafts and just wait for someone younger, someone fresher from lower in my rankings who has better pass catching skills and more upside if things break right for them. You know, the handcuff types like Chase Edmonds or Duke Johnson or Boston Scott, etc. So I think you and I are in agreement there. Let's briefly touch on the lower guys in the depth chart there for Washington. J.D. McKissick, Peyton Barber, Bryce Love. Do you have any interest in these guys for fantasy? Because I don't really. Yeah, I think you could potentially take a swing at Bryce Love late just because, like, before the injuries in college, like, he was unreal. He averaged 8.1 yards per carry at Stanford in, in 2017. The problem is that was 2017 in college, and he's had, like, a bunch of different knee surgeries and injuries since then. So I think that because love is in an ambiguous situation, because we've seen him be electric at some point in the path or in the past, you can go there, but it would need to be like a bench stash type dude where like, you've already got everything else fulfilled. You've run out of other options. I'm okay taking a stab there, but like McKissick and Barber, we know exactly what they are. So I think if I were to go at anyone, it would be love, but I agree with you. We're like, I don't think he is a priority person to get at the end of your draft. Just kind of someone like if you're lost and can't think of anybody, Bryce love could be a guy for that situation. Yeah. I think the place for love is deep dynasty leagues where you have the bench to stash somebody for that potential upside but in a regular redraft league i'm just not even gonna throw that dart i'll throw it at somebody else Uh, let's move on to miami where albert wilson and alan hearns have both opted out for the 2020 season how much or how little does this affect your fantasy evaluation of Devontae parker I think that what it does is it keeps him relatively similar, but what it does is it increases my floor expectation for Devontae Parker because mm-hmm. you could see a situation where they have Preston Williams, they have Mike Kosicki, they have, uh, and they have the other two guys in Albert Wilson and Alan Hearns, and maybe they decide to spread the ball out a bit. That was like a potential path to disappointment for Devontae Parker. Now that path, while still possible because like Williams and Kosicki are still there, is less likely than it was before. So I think what it does is it kind of solidifies uh, Devontae Parker where he was for me. He's actually, I was looking at the the four for four consensus rankings. I am immediately in line with Devontae Parker at wide receiver 27. I think that's a fair place to have him. I think that if he, if he is my highest ranked player on the board when he comes up, I have no problem taking him there. But I don't think it necessarily bumps him up at all. It's more so I just feel better about taking him where he's currently going. Yeah, agreed. I think it's a much bigger deal for Preston Williams, Mike Kosecki, yeah. and the other tertiary receivers in Miami. So who's it better for? Is it better for the value of Preston Williams or for Mike Kosecki? And are you drafting either of those guys in your leagues? Yeah, I think Kosecki's really fun because, like, I know, again, we're talking about context, yada, yada, yada. I was just talking about this, but you can look <laughs> at the end of last year and see that Kosecki had 27 targets the final three games. His target share in those games was also really good. We saw the effectiveness start to get better. And it's not as if Kosicki 
only popped up at that time. Like Preston Williams in week seven through nine was a very relevant player. And even that time, Gesicki had seven, four, three and six targets. And that was really early in the season. He was kind of like this raw guy coming out of college. So it made sense that he would ramp up as the season went along. So I think that what it does is it makes me feel a lot better about Gesicki and kind of not reaching for him, but maybe taking him a bit above consensus in that that middle tight end tier, which I think is a, honestly a much better tier this year than it is most years. But I still think Kasiki is someone who does stand out there. He's my tight end nine right now, so uh, I've been trying to get him quite a bit. Uh, this does help that for sure, because especially Wilson is a very relevant player, and not having him in there definitely does impact the projection for guys uh, like Gesicki and like Williams. But I just think that Williams, given the positional scarcity and the, the issues that we have at tight end, I think that it just really makes me feel a lot better about taking him, even though I was already taking him a little bit above where he was going to begin with. Yeah, I've been off Gesicki pretty much all offseason, but I can't help but start questioning that now. I, I do still yeah. wonder how much Miami is going to want to throw and if Preston Williams does turn out to be healthy to start the year, I think that's sort of bad news for Gusecki's target share, even with Hearns and Wilson opting out. But I agree that Gusecki's value has to go up in light of this news, and I'm going to have to start considering him a little bit more aggressively because I haven't been drafting him until this point in the season. i got to get a couple shares here before everything's said and done. Williams, on the other hand, still feels risky to me, if only because he is recovering from that injury. I was really into him last season based upon all the hype coming out of college, but I don't think I've drafted him at all this year because I tend to avoid injury optimism in my approach. Are, are you on the same lines there with Williams? Yeah, I've not found him as being, like, with where he's currently going, I don't, I don't see him as being, like, like, I think he's fine, but it's not something where I don't think the gap between him and the players he's going around is that big. And there are yeah. other players there who I do like. I think that's why I wind up not gravitating towards Preston Williams, because I think that other players have similar upside, but they have a an easier path to being relevant. Their floor is lower, despite having a similar ceiling. Let's talk about some of the true you know, replacements for Wilson and Hearns. Jakeem Grant, Gary Jennings, Chester Rogers. Is it any one of these guys' season, SZN, uh, or <laughs> or should we just kind of not really concern ourselves with these third, fourth, fifth options in Miami? Yeah, I think in when in doubt, go with the player who is like fresher, um, because like we know what, Jakeem Grant's had chances to you know get a bigger role. Chester Rogers, same thing. Whereas like Gary, Gary Jennings, like. He was pretty fun. Like, I don't know if you've ever played college football DFS, Greg, but Gary Jennings at West Virginia was, like, disgusting. He had 13 touchdowns his senior year. Now he's a senior year wide receiver, mm-hmm. didn't have a lot of draft stock, is not with the same team that, that took him. So, like, there are a lot of downsides to Gary Jennings, but I think in those situations you go with the lesser-known asset, and that's Gary Jennings. But, again, it's kind of similar to Bryce Love where – you go at him in a dynasty league where you have those huge bench spots and probably have some guys who are now on injured reserve due to opt-outs and stuff like that. Uh, so I would go with him there, but definitely not on the redraft board right now. This is a pro Gary Jennings podcast. I've had a soft, bo- <laughs> soft spot for him based upon that, that production he showed in his last year of college, the athletic measurables he put up at the Combine. Like If you go over to playerprofiler.com, you can see he was like 77th percentile or better in his 40 time, his speed score, his burst score. I think Jakeem Grant is, you know, more of the incumbent, right? And at first glance, he seems like the more prototypical slot type receiver to play between Parker and Williams on the outside. The problem is that when I looked this up earlier, Parker played 50% in the slot when he and Williams were both healthy last year. And Williams played about 25% in the slot per Sports Info Solutions. And we have to assume that Kaseki is going to see some time in the slot too. And that makes me think that Miami's third wideout in three wide sets is going to need to be more of an outside type. And maybe I'm oversimplifying Jakeem Grant's skill set based upon his size. He's a smaller receiver. But Gary Jennings just feels like the better fit for that type of outside role to me. So while I've already dropped Jennings in the one dynasty league where I had drafted him as a rookie, I am still keeping an eye on him to see how this wide receiver usage shakes out in Miami. Because like you said, what he showed in college was intriguing. Right. Absolutely. And I think that that does matter. So even though we are now removed from that like we've seen this player produce when given volume at some point in his life and we can't say that about everyone so i think that jennings is worth monitoring i think is the way the proper way that i'd phrase that yeah i'm not drafting him but i'll be watching in those early weeks we'll see how it goes now before we get to our running back preview let's talk about the sponsor of this show manscaped.com 
I don't know about you, Jim, or the listeners, but I grow hair like it's my job. Admittedly, not as much as taking place on top of my head anymore, but it's still a chore to keep my beard in check. And when you throw in the rest of the hair on my body, keeping everything tidy and trimmed can feel like a full-time job. And unfortunately, it has led me to get a little impatient in the manscaping process at times in the past. And I have suffered some trimmer horror stories below the belt. I can tell you from experience that there isn't much worse than nicking, slicing, or pinching that sensitive skin on your field general or his lineman due to a subpar grooming device. And that's why I'm so excited about Manscaped redesigning the electric trimmer. Their engineering team spent 18 months perfecting the greatest ball hair trimmer ever created and just released the new and improved Lawnmower 3.0. Their third generation trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce manscaping accidents thanks to Manscaped's advanced skin safe technology. When I tell you this is premium, I mean premium. The battery will last up to 90 minutes so you can take a longer shave. The water resistant technology allows you to groom in the shower. And one of the coolest features is the LED light which illuminates the grooming area for a closer and more precise trimming experience. They've also upgraded to a 7,000 RPM motor with quiet stroke technology. And let's not forget about the charging stand. Show off your mower loud and proud because this intelligently designed stand is a convenient charging dock powered by USB. If you're listening to me right now, I want you to experience the lawnmower firsthand for yourself. Trim that junk off yours. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code TMAP at manscaped.com. That's manscaped.com with promo code TMAP, T-M-A-P, for a 20% discount and free shipping. So order today. Your nether regions and your partner will thank you. All right, Jim, let's get into our running back deep dive. Just at a base level, let's talk general scheme for how to approach running backs. What is your tweet length summary of your running back strategy? I think it's get bell cows while you can and then wait, 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 because that middle tier is just kind of scary. So Greg, I think that like for me, I want the high volume bell cows, the guys who are going to get carries, going to get targets. And then once they're off the board, I'm just going to go wide receiver for a while because it gets really sketchy real quick at that position. Right. And bell cow to us, I'm, and I'm speaking for you here, that means a heavy workload, both rushing and receiving. We don't want guys who are Correct. only going to be contributing in the running game. We want them to be catching passes as well. And honestly, you might only be able to find one of these bell cows in your draft. That might be enough. It can be enough in many cases, but you want to maximize your opportunity to get those guys, right? Right, because the gap in production between the bell cow guys, the guys who get early down and passing down work, the gap between them in the field is huge. So if you miss out on that, I guess if we're viewing this as like a, a graph, their production is at the top end. And then the difference between a, let's say, a third round running back and a fifth round running back isn't all that much. So it's OK to take a more of a wait and see approach once those like true top end guys are off the board. Right. And that's a big caveat here, right? You have to understand that bell cows don't always come from the first three, four, five rounds of a draft. And that's why you don't want to be overspending on running back necessarily in that range. You want to take your shots in that first round, in the second round, if there's a guy you like in the third, fourth, or fifth. But you also need to mix in picks at other positions. You want to make sure you're not falling too far behind at wide receiver in this quest to find your bell cow running back. Because it's, it's easy to hear somebody say, Go get a bell cow. Get as many bell cows as you can and interpret that as, well, I'm just going to spend my first five picks on running backs. And if I hit on three of them, then I'll be golden. Well, it doesn't quite work like that, right? Because you're giving up a lot of other positions to do that. Because just like the running back tiers start to dry up after the first couple rounds, so do the top tiers of wide receiver and other positions, right? Yeah. And that's why I want to get the the running backs and then move on. And like, I think that to me, just the advantage of having the certain, and it's not just like the ceiling production with the bell cows. It's also like if you are getting work as both a rusher and a receiver, it means you're not going to have weeks where you're just like totally irrelevant. And if you are a, a rush only running back, there are going to be weeks where like, I'm just not going to want to use you. Whereas like with these guys who are getting targets, you can plug them in and just forget about it because you know that no matter what the game script may be, they're going to be a relevant fantasy piece. So once those players are gone, that's when I definitely want the wide receivers. But I do want to get those those bell cow running backs who have that guaranteed weekly production. I want to get them while I still can effectively. Now, if we acknowledge that there are only so many bell cows to go around and we're going to still have to use some running backs who don't fit that qualification, 
what else are we looking for, right? We're looking for running backs who are on good teams and good offenses. Yeah. We're aiming for money touches, you know, receptions and work around the end zone. And we have to go into our drafts planning to grind the running back position on waivers all season and let that inform our draft strategy. Is there anything else secondary to this bell cow idea that you want to throw out in terms of general running back strategy before we get into some player specific takes? It was the big ones you mentioned. I want players on good teams who will score touchdowns, and I want uh, I call them high leverage touches, uh, both as you know touchdown uh, chances, but also in the passing game because in a half PPR league, a target is worth twice as much as a rush attempt. So that can add up in a hurry, meaning that guys who don't even get that many rush attempts can still be super viable fantasy players if they're getting enough targets. I'm not saying I want to go for guys like Tariq Cohen necessarily because sometimes everything is pretty hollow and like you do need a certain amount of like rush attempts to be a really impressive running back in fantasy. But I think just looking for those archetypes, looking for guys who get targets, guys who are on good teams and have paths to big production, which are mostly to the through those two routes. Those are the players who can really pay off after we get past that bell cow tier. All right, let's start running down running back ADP here. And Christian McCaffrey is the consensus 101. I don't know if I've been in a draft this season where I've seen anybody else go with the first pick. And that includes a lot of super flex leagues. Now, I've, I've seen other people's drafts where this has happened. But in all the leagues I've drafted, McCaffrey's been the 101. But if you had to make a contrarian RB pick in that spot, first overall, who would you take? I wanted to go Zeke just because we talked about like good teams and like I value touchdowns, which, you know, I would hope everyone does. Uh, I value touchdowns. I want to find touchdowns. Zeke's team is going to be amazing. The concern that I have is last year when they had Gallup and Amari Cooper, you know, really beasting out, Zeke's target share went down a mm-hmm. concerning amounts. And for that reason, it's really hard for me not to go Saquon Barkley at two just because I know – the passing game volume is going to be there. Even last year, you know, when he was banged up, they were still getting him looks as a wide receiver. And Saquon showed at the end of the year that he was able to take advantage of that volume. So, yeah, they do lose Nate Solder because he did opt out. But uh, Andrew Thomas being there does help quite a bit. So I'm expecting this offensive line, as it sneakily was last year, to not be that bad. I think people overrated uh, or underrated the offensive line because Daniel Jones had such an affinity for sacks. They kind of underrated the offensive line as a result of that. I think it's better than perception. I think that Saquon is going to get a lot of targets. So I wanted to go Zeke because of the team, but I couldn't do it just because the fears around those target shares, especially now with CD Lamb being there, they're legitimate and they do, they do lock Saquon in as the number two running back to me. Yep, I'm the same way. I think Barkley is the was the easy answer. I can't argue with that. He's an extraordinary talent. The Giants are just going to feed him like crazy as long as he's healthy. We, we should expect that, and I think that that's the main reason why you see him go second in most drafts. But I think if you're looking for perhaps a more under-the-radar option to dominate his team's offense, kind of like McCaffrey did last season, like we expect Barkley to do, the guy for me is Dalvin Cook. Based on the limited number of proven wideouts in Minnesota— a lot of two tight end sets and by extension, you know, a lot of running back touches like these things seem to be on the horizon. The big question with cook is whether or not he can hold up to a big workload, but I'm honestly less worried about injury risk in a season when every player is going to be at constant risk of a positive COVID-19 test. Like I want to go after the highest volume and highest upside players possible so I can open up the season strong, start to pile up wins right away And Dalvin Cook is a proven producer when healthy with a team context that pretty much assures him of a big workload from week one going forward. And so if I had to make like a dark horse pick, I think it would be Cook. But, you know, beyond that, you know, Barkley is an easy answer. Zeke has a case. Uh, But ultimately, we're just taking McCaffrey 101, right? One thing you said there that I think is important to note is like you talked about how everyone can get COVID. And that's something that was like, I think I misconstrued in baseball analysis this year where it was like, I was saying that, like, hey, anyone can get hurt, so no one truly has a floor. People misconstrued that as saying, like, we shouldn't care about injuries because they thought that they were saying because it's a shorter season, like, no one will get hurt. No, it's that everyone can get hurt. So why does it matter that Dalvin Cook historically has gotten hurt? And I think that that's important to know. Like, and because anyone can get hurt, everyone's floor is effectively zero. So I am okay taking injury risk, not because they're not going to get hurt, but because everyone else can too. 
Right. And my approach with injury risk has always to been not to stack up too much of it. Like you can take a shot on yeah. one or two of those types of players, but when you start to go after every guy who's coming off of a, an injury from last year, that's when you start to really uh, set yourself up for failure. But um, speaking of Cook, I think I have him at running back four, running back five. I'd have to double check uh, the, the CEH stuff kind of th- threw a monkey wrench into my top <laughs> six or whatever. But regardless, that second and third tier of running back is a really interesting one, right? It's like after McCaffrey, Barkley, and Elliott are all off the board, it's not exceptionally clear who should be the running back four. And then beyond that, like running back five, six, seven, like it's a dead heat between a lot of different guys. So I'm curious who from that second and third tier of running backs are you most willing to pass over despite their ADPs? Like which guys are you most worried about and less inclined to draft, uh, you know, among like Alvin Kamara, Cook, Derrick Henry, Joe Mixon, Kenyon Drake, Miles Sanders, Nick Chubb, that that group of running backs. I, I wouldn't say I'm worried about Derrick Henry, but I am okay passing over him in favor of a wide receiver because after I have Kamara as my fifth overall back, and I think that he is a fifth overall player to me, but once he's off the board, I think that it's the end of a tier. And once that tier is done, I'm okay going with Devontae Adams or Michael Thomas or maybe even like Tyree Kill as opposed to going Derrick Henry because he doesn't get work in the passing game. There is a chance that Ryan Tannehill turns back into a pumpkin. Like that's always a a possibility. Uh, That offense, you know, has some changeover on the offensive line, which is I know they took uh, a first round offensive line, which can help patch that gap. But there is changeover there and there is a potential for disappointment in that offense. So the lack of passing usage worries me about Henry. I'm also like, I'm okay with Nixon where he's at. I'm not like, again, if one of the wide receivers is there, I'm okay taking them. Mm-hmm. Nick Chubb worries me a decent amount. Uh, just because again, I don't know what the passing game usage will be. He had a 7.1% target share after Kareem Hunt returned from his suspension last year. So uh, I have Nick Chubb as my RB 13. I think that's, lower enough than consensus to say where I probably would not be taking him. So there's actually a decent number of backs in there. I think Henry, Mixon, and Chubb all at least kind of apply. Uh, Henry, for sure, if I can get one of the wide receivers. And Chubb is definitely a guy who I'm just lower on than uh, where I need to be on him to get him this year. Yeah, Mixon and Chubb are both my picks here as well. I have no doubt about Mixon's talent, but the Bengals have the league's worst offensive line, according to Justin Edwards, O-line rankings at 4for4.com. He's done a lot of work studying offensive line, so I trust his opinion there. And I mean, if we're talking about like the absolute worst versus like the 28th best team, they're all going to be pretty bad and pretty close in being bad. Uh, so I'm not going to read too much into that. The fact is that the Bengals O-line is concerning. Uh, since his defense isn't great shakes either, so they should be throwing a lot. And Mixon is going to be competing for targets with a pretty stacked wide receiver group, to be honest. They have a lot of quality wide receivers on the Bengals. I mean, maybe all this comes out in the wash for Mixon based simply on the fact that he could end up catching a lot of passes. Like if he ends up on a 100-target pace like Leonard Fournette did last year, Mixon will almost certainly have a huge fantasy season. But I don't think we can expect that level of usage. So if Mixon doesn't play out of his mind to make up for his poor offensive line, if he doesn't land on the right side of touchdown variance, then I think we might look back and be disappointed by his first round price tag in 2020 drafts. And just like with Mixon, I, I have no concerns about Nick Chubb's talent. And I think right. the worries about him losing work to Kareem Hunt are a, a little overblown. But the fact is that he is going to lose some work to Kareem Hunt. And I don't think that you can expect similar competition for touches with any of the other running backs in this range, right? Chubb is dealing with the best backup talent relative to the other running backs we're talking about. And that's a little scary to me. I'm not in full-on fade mode with Nick Chubb, but I have pushed him behind Kenyon Drake, Joe Mixon, Miles Sanders, and Aaron Jones in my rankings. So it sounds like you and I are in a pretty similar spot with Chubb where we like him, just not as much as these other guys, right? Yeah, he'd have to fall pretty far for me to get there uh, based on where he's currently going. So it's not a situation where, like, I would never consider Nick Chubb. I would just need a pretty dramatic deviation from his current ADP in order for me to actually feel good taking him uh, in the second round. Now, if your draft plays out in such a way, Jim, like you described, where you're pivoting to Michael Thomas or Tyreek Hill in the first couple rounds, those types of high-end wide receivers, and you don't end up drafting many running backs early— who are your preferred targets at RB in the middle rounds and, say, the, the late single-digit rounds? Yeah, so I'm like I said, I'm generally averse to like the middle round running backs, but I think that one decently big exception is Le'Veon Bell, and this could just be me 
being very stupid. Um, and I want to be fully transparent about that. But when you look at the Jets offensive line in week one this year, it's going to be literally five different starters yep. from what it was in week one last year. And that's scary, given that there's no preseason games, there's no time to work on that. But it's not as if there's no training camp. I think that some of this stuff is being a little bit overstated, like they will be in training camp. And those five guys who are, I would say, each position is an individual upgrade over the position last year. I think those five individual players will be working alongside each other in training camp. And Le'Veon Bell, we saw at times last year, was able to get some receiving volume. The Jets didn't add enough at wide receiver to make me think that Le'Veon Bell's uh, role in the passing game, which again was sketchy at times last year, but overall he still had good numbers as a receiver. I would expect him to still get in the four to five to six target range. And, you know, it's not super common among guys who are going to be the main early down rushers and who are going in the fourth round. So I think Le'Veon Bell is a big exception. I was talking about uh, not being into Nick Chubb. I think it kind of makes sense that I'd be into Kareem Hunt because Kareem Hunt getting that passing down work on a good team with the potential for him to be a bell cow if something were to happen to Nick Chubb. You don't get that. Uh, You don't get a floor and a ceiling in the sixth round very often. It's like, don't go nuts with Kareem Hunt. Like, don't take him way above where he's going. But I definitely think that he is a solid value. So Le'Veon Bell and Kareem Hunt are the the main two guys who I turn to if things break in a really poor way early on the draft for me. Yeah, Bell is one of my most... I don't want to put this like one of the toughest running backs for me to evaluate this year because there are a lot of conflicting data points. Like you said, the Jets invested more resources into their offensive line than any other team this offseason. But we know that continuity matters a lot to offensive line play. So it's hard to say how soon this new group might gel and start opening up consistent running lanes in season. Bell is also getting pumped up for his offseason training, his motivation to succeed this season, including by his coach Adam Gase. But forgive me if I'm not ready to believe that Bell and and Gase are finally seeing eye to eye. We have a lot of evidence to the contrary. Most importantly, and perhaps most simply, Bell has been largely great to this point through his career. But in the process of doing that, he's he's stacked up a lot of touches and a lot of wear on his body. The the typical shelf life for NFL running backs should tell us that Bell is unlikely to return to his previous form. But, you know, if he can manage to become... 80%, 90%, 95% 80%, 90%, 95% of what he used to be through this newfound motivation, through the newfound shape that he's in for 2020, then he could be a really nice value there in the fourth round of drafts. Unfortunately for me, though, the wide receivers available in that range are just so appealing. Like you're looking at Allen Robinson, DJ Moore, Odell Beckham Jr., Cooper Cup, Juju Smith-Schuster, Calvin Ridley, A.J. Brown. And frankly, those receivers just seem more safe, more reliable to me to the point where Bell is just kind of in this ADP dead zone where I just can't find myself pulling the trigger. Yeah, I get the appeal of Bell for all the reasons that you stated. He's a potential bell cow guy. He's reportedly rearing to go in great shape, and we've seen him do it before. But all these little red, orange, and yellow flags make him a tough evaluation for me. So it really comes down to what sort of season do you really believe he's going to have? If you believe he's going to return to form, then you can use those late first and early round second picks on wide receivers, knowing that you can get Bell later and be that Bell cow back. But if you are more sketched out by Bell like I am, then you might be more likely to take a Joe Mixon or a Nick Chubb in the first or second round and look to your third and fourth round picks in this range for one of those wide receivers I just mentioned. So I think it's going to be different for everybody, depending upon how you feel about Bell, how you feel about just your risk tolerance in general. But he, yeah. he's, he's a really tough evaluation for me. Who's your toughest running back to evaluate in 2020? Uh, I think it's it's really difficult to get a, a grasp on David Montgomery because yeah. there are so many weird things that are like Chicago is just a weird like team in general. Uh, but I'm not sure what to think of him because the line was brutal last year. They didn't do a ton to address it this year. Nick Foles could be an upgrade, but he could also be like Jacksonville Nick Foles. We could see David Montgomery get more work in the passing game as he did at times last year. We could just see that all keep going to Tariq Cohen for some reason. So I don't know. I know he's going to get the early down rushing work. There is at least some value in that. And that's why, like, when I see him, like, going where he's going, I'm like, oh, I should be into David Montgomery. And I try to dig in more. But then when I dig in more, I can't sell myself still. So, like, 
it's these like conflicting things pulling me one way and another where I'm just very confused about where I should put him. And I don't feel good about have being too high on him or being too low on him. He's just kind of like, I throw my hands up in the air. I'm like, I don't know. I, I don't want to deal with it. Let someone else deal with it. I'm so confused right now. Yeah. And thankfully he's also in that range where there's so many viable wide receiver picks right. that if you don't want to draft David Montgomery, you just don't have to. Uh, Jim, who is 2020's most overvalued running back in your mind? I think it's Raheem Mostert still. Uh, I know that his ADP has been really fluctuating uh, with the the trade rumors and now with the contract situation being worked out. So he it kind of depends on where he shakes out. But he's still not going to get early down or get get passing down work on that team. They said last year they liked having Tevin Coleman start the game. So the projected volume for Mostert goes down as a result of that. Jarek McKinnon will mix in. So. You have those situations, and if the offense regresses any, these not they're not going to be able to run as much. So I think I just see too many paths to failure for Raheem Mostert, where even if his ADP does come down, if people get skittish as a result of the, again, now in the past, trade rumors, then I don't even think I'll see myself getting there. I, I think I need him to come down pretty far before I got super interested. I've got Leonard Fournette for this one, and this is by no means a unique a unique take from me. And I should admit that I just made the case on last week's show that the hate might have gone too far on Fournette. But when I looked at my personal rankings today, I've got Fournette as a fifth or sixth rounder, and the expert consensus has him as a third or fourth rounder. And two rounds of difference at the top of a draft like that is huge. Like It, it doesn't seem like much, but that really means just I'm, I'm not going to end up with Fournette at all. The other guys I think are the most overvalued are just the committee guys where I simply like some other player from the backfield more. Like, for example, I'm pretty down on Kerryon Johnson only because I'm super high on DeAndre Swift. Um, in fact, yeah. we've been talking about overvalued guys. Let's shift gears. I have DeAndre Swift pegged as 2020's most undervalued running back within the first few rounds of the draft. He was the top fantasy rusher on a lot of people's boards before the NFL draft. And then in the draft, he was tied to more draft capital than every running back except for Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. The Lions are seen by many as a somewhat tragic landing spot for Swift, but not by me. In Detroit, I see a backfield where no one can compete with Swift in the receiving game. And again, the draft capital spent on Swift speaks volumes to me about what they think about him as a, a talent and as a player who can be incorporated into their offense. Swift's ADP has crept up a little bit recently into the fifth and sixth rounds, but I'm willing to reach for him in the fourth, maybe even the third in some circumstances, depending upon how my draft is shaping up. Um, So I I love Swift, but Jim, who do you think is the most undervalued running back right now? Yeah, Swift is in my consideration for this one uh, because like you were talking about the passing game work, like he got passing game work when he was splitting a backfield as a true freshman with Nick Chubb and Sony Michelle. So dude's going to get targets. Uh, So he was in consideration for me, but I wound up going Cam Akers and I get why people are not into Cam Akers. We've heard talk all offseason about how this will be a running back by committee. I think that when you look at the skill set of Cam Akers, though, he checks a lot of the boxes we discussed before of players we want to target in this range. He is on what I think is a good offense. Maybe that's stupid. Uh, Like I I've talked to you before about my adoration of Jared Goff. Like we've had this discussion on this podcast before. You know how much I like him. And I think this offensive line will be better this year because they improved as the season went along. They adjusted their scheme in like week 11 to be super play action heavy, which uh, made the offense as a whole be more efficient. And that was when they had a lot of replacement players in there. Now they're getting the guys who were – uh, replaced the guys who got hurt last year are coming back, which means there's competition. The continuity is not going to be there, but the competition will be. So if Joseph Noteboom isn't good, you can go to someone else. They've actually got bodies to compete at those positions. And I think at that team, that's pretty valuable. Uh, Cam Akers in college got a lot of passing game work. He's on an offense that I think will be good. I think they're going to have to score a lot of points because that defense will probably not be good uh, given all the losses that they had. And we know they're going to be fast. So, There are so many positive factors working for Cam Akers that even though the floor may not be good if they decide to go with, you know, Malcolm Brown and Daryl Henderson still, I still think the ceiling is good enough to justify taking a mediocre floor on Cam Akers because I can see the path to him having a really good year if things break the way I think they could. Yeah, ultimately, I think the sharpest answer is that the most undervalued running back is going to be some of one of these unknowable handcuff types who's going to step in and take over more work than we expected, right? Whether it's due to injury or other running backs in those backfields underperforming. And so that kind of brings me to a more general question here. Under what circumstances does handcuffing your own running backs become a viable or necessary strategy in your mind, Jim? Because 
you could talk yourself into drafting both Cam Akers and Daryl Henderson and maybe even Malcolm Brown even later to quote unquote lock up the Rams backfield. But is that something you're willing to do in practice? And if so, when is it the right time to do that? I don't think it's ever necessary. Um, if, if that was one of the words here, I don't think it's ever necessary to do this. Uh, like people think it's necessary if there's an injury risk. I don't like if you, the, the common example would be Dalvin Cook at Alexander Madison. I don't think it's ever necessary. I think it's viable if it's a really good team and the second piece is very, very, very cheap. So like, let's say you get Clyde Edwards Hilaire in the first round. I think it's viable then to get DeAndre Washington or someone else like that super late just because I'm assuming the cost of DeAndre Washington will eventually go up, but it's not as if he's ever going to be cost prohibitive. And the team there is so freaking good that I am okay putting extra assets into that backfield. So I think it has to be a situation almost identical to that where it's a like the best offense in football and one of the players essentially costs you nothing. That I think is a situation where it is viable to do so because like I'd rather take two cracks at the Kansas City backfield than take two cracks at like the New England backfield or something like that. Now, if you're looking for a running back to hand, a handcuff type running back, not necessarily handcuffing with the starter, but who is your favorite running back of that mold? Someone who's generally in a backup role, but you think, you know, could be having a lot of value by season's end. I think that Boston Scott's pretty fun. Um, he's not like insanely cheap because people have been talking about Boston Scott for a while. But uh, down the stretch last year, he had six or more targets in four straight games. It sounds like they want to get him involved in the offense. Uh, we know that he has speed and the, the Eagles looking for that. I know they've added a bunch of guys. Marquise Goodwin, though, did opt out. So I think there is a path to Boston Scott playing a role within this team, even though I really like Miles Sanders and think that Miles Sanders is well worth where he's going like this is not a an anti Miles Sanders thing it is a pro Boston Scott team it seems like Doug Peterson is or is one of those guys where he wants his best players in the field and I think that that could be a situation where Miles Sanders and Boston Scott at least share some snaps so pro Boston Scott very much not anti Miles Sanders in a very similar vein I like Chase Edmonds a lot I believe in this Cardinals offense and more importantly I believe in a faster pace for the Cardinals this season which hopefully is going to give Edmonds some standalone value playing next to Kenyon Drake, not necessarily behind him at all times. And of course, if Drake does end up missing time, that first point about me just believing in the Arizona offense in general means that I want whoever their starting tailback is going to be. And I think that's Edmonds. So I see the upside there. I see a little bit of standalone value, kind of like you do with Boston Scott. And that's why he's one of my preferred handcuff targets. If I'm just trying to aim for that upside with, with maybe a little bit of standalone value. Um, let's talk about a few other running back committees here. Which timeshare do you feel like you have more clarity on than the general fantasy populace? And which rusher from that team are you targeting to exploit that perceived market inefficiency? I think the actions on the Rams kind of tell you what they think about Malcolm Brown and um, and Daryl Henderson, given mm. that they did not have a first-round pick and still decided to take Cam Akers with their first pick. I thought that was pretty telling. I know, again... What they're saying says differently, but when you read the actions, this is something we talked about a lot last year with like reading the act TVs around Todd Gurley, like when they invested a lot in the running back position, now they're investing a lot in this specific player. So I feel like I have a good read on Cam Akers, but I also, I thought that DeAndre Swift is a situation where I have a pretty good read on that one because there was talk about them potentially like trading for Kenyon Drake last year at the trade deadline. I know that carry on was hurt at that time, but this is not the first time we've seen them sniffing around good running backs. I don't think they're tied to carry on Johnson in any way. So I think that Deandre Swift, although being the more costly piece in this backfield is the right piece to get because he'll get that passing down work. Matthew Stafford was freaking awesome last year when when he was healthy. So it could be a decent offense too. So I think that uh, the two rookies, Cam Akers and Deandre Swift, both situations where I'm getting the guy who is going earlier. But I think that because I feel like I have a good read there, I am okay with taking, taking on that extra cost. Which running back committee are you just throwing your hands up at and avoiding altogether? Uh, not avoiding altogether, but uh, the Bills. Um, like, mm. I would need some things to break the right way in order to have a, a Bill on my roster because Singletary is going too early for me and Zach Moss isn't quite going late enough because 
I don't know that either player is going to have a monopoly on the high leverage touches because if Moss gets more of the goal line work, whereas Singletary gets the passing down work, they cannibalize each other a lot. And I don't have enough faith in Josh Allen to roll the dice there. So the Bills pretty easily the team that scares me the most. And I'm just okay, kind of just not going there. Now, I apologize in advance to you and the listeners because we've already talked about how context matters and how we should be trying to contextualize our analysis a little bit. But I'm going to make you go one name answers only for some rapid fire committees here. Okay. Indianapolis, Jonathan Taylor, or Marlon Mack? Taylor. And, and we're discussing that. Let's caveat this and say at cost, right? Because cost yeah. does matter. Um, San Francisco, we know it's not Mostert. Uh, Tevin Coleman or Jarek McKinnon? Uh, either Coleman or McKinnon. I know this is not one word, sorry. You, <laughs> it's either Coleman monster. or McKinnon. I know. But I'll go Coleman at, over McKinnon relative to cost right now. Yeah, I actually like all three of these guys generally where they go in drafts because I, I just like that offense. I wish I had a little yeah. bit more of Mostert just in my portfolio of picks. But for me, it's it's probably been McKinnon, the guy I've drafted the most. But I like Coleman at cost too. Um, Detroit, we're both on DeAndre Swift over Kerryon Johnson. Mm-hmm. Tampa Bay, uh, Ronald Jones, Keyshawn Vaughn, or someone else? Tell Twitter to like earmuff, but it's it's Keyshawn Vaughn. I I don't want the Ronald Jones people coming after me, but it's Keyshawn Vaughn to me. Miami, Matt Breda or Jordan Howard? Give me Breda. I want that passing down work. Yeah, me too. Uh, New England, uh, Sony Michelle, James White, Damian Harris, Rex Burkhead, or breaking news, Lamar Miller, who just signed pending a physical. Oh, interesting. Um, Is it interesting? I mean... <laughs> Because I, I was into Sony Michelle until Marcus Cannon opted out, and I was like, oh, no, this could be bad. And then there's a foot injury. So, like, if you had asked me this two weeks ago before the opt-outs began, it would have been Sony Michelle. Now I'm kind of thinking I just go with the unknown and go Damian Harris instead. So it's gone back and forth, but I'll lean Harris right now. Yeah, this very easily could have been the answer to the which committee are you throwing your hands yeah. up at, right? <laughs> I mean, every year it's, New England does this to us. Um, for me, it's Damian Harris. He's my most drafted running back this offseason because, you know, back in the early best balls, he was very, very cheap. And I just like couldn't help but talk myself into like the cheapest running back from New England because we've seen that role produced before. Um, Mm -hmm. Who's the running back you find yourself drafting the most often this season? We talked about Boston Scott before, but it is him just because, again, I think that he's not Kareem Hunt. But there are similarities to Kareem Hunt mm-hmm. where I can probably get something out of him regardless. And there is the potential for it to be much more than that. So uh, Boston Scott is someone I've gotten a lot of uh, just because of that. I like that profile a lot. Now, which running back do you kind of wish you could be drafting more often? Someone who you feel like you're into, but for whatever reason, you just keep missing out on in drafts. So shockingly, Eagles again, it's Miles Sanders. Um, I, I don't sure. know why I keep missing out on Miles Sanders. And like, I think I'm like technically higher on Miles Sanders than consensus. Uh, I have him as my RB7 and he's the RB9 right now. It's so like technically I'm higher, but for whatever reason, the way things have worked, I haven't gotten him. Like if I'm at the back end of the first round, sweet. Give me Miles Sanders. Just things haven't worked out that way so far. Yeah, similar for me, I'm going to go across the state in Pennsylvania to James Conner. I thought Conner was a bounce back. I'd be buying a lot this season, but I just haven't drafted him much. And I think it most likely has to do with those draft position concerns you were talking about. I've ended up with picks between fourth and sixth a lot this year. And so when I'm on the clock in the early to mid third round, it usually feels a little bit too early to draft James yeah. Conner. But then when it swings back around to me in the mid to late fourth, Conner is usually gone. So I'm just yeah. not getting him. And I think the bulk of the touches have gone to Conner when he's been healthy, which should be the case again this season. The Steelers have a great offensive line to run behind. And that makes Conner more appealing to me than a lot of the other backs in that running back 16 to running back 24 range most of whom seem like bigger risks to me based on either their injury histories, and that's not to say Connor has a spotless injury track record, but more so the team context, right? The aforementioned Le'Veon Bell with the Jets comes to mind, where I just don't know if I want the Jets running back, whereas I look at the Steelers and everything they've got going on, and I do want the Pittsburgh Steelers running back. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense for sure. I think that the reason that I've been like, uh, same as you, where like I could go at James Conner in like the third round, but the reason I've been scared and I haven't taken that plunge is the concern around, well, do they actually want him to get the passing down work? Uh, and I think given the Jalen Samuel situation, maybe they are more comfortable with James Conner getting that passing down work. Seems like Samuel's maybe very much on like the outside looking in. So maybe Conner does get that passing down work. It's been a concern for me, but I think 
it may just be lingering concern around Ben Roethlisberger's health. And maybe as we see more video him throwing, maybe I need to warm up to James Conner more than I have so far. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Now, if you're going super deep, who is your favorite deep sleeper dart throw at running back? Somebody who would maybe be one of your last few picks in, say, a 20-round best ball type of format. I'm hoping that he stays in this range, but DeAndre Washington, um, I guess I haven't seen since the uh, the Damian Williams stuff where DeAndre Washington has been going, but if I can get a guy who, in the right situation, would be getting passing down work for the Kansas City Chiefs, I want every part of that. Uh, I feel very confident in Clyde Edwards-Hilaire where he's going. That does not mean I will not take swipes at DeAndre Washington, just because I want as much exposure and cheap exposure to that offense as I can get. Right. And this is where I'm going to say Jarek McKinnon, for all the reasons you laid out earlier about kind of not liking Mostert. I just like the idea that McKinnon is going to be involved in that offense. We've seen Kyle Shanahan deploy that sort of committee even last year with Mostert and with Coleman and with Jeff Wilson. Like if these guys are healthy enough to play, they're going to play. And they're like McKinnon is, is explosive enough as an athlete if he you know, was able to regain that athleticism after being injured that I think he's very intriguing based upon where he's going and the team situation that he finds himself in. A few other late-round dart throws I like to make. Uh, maybe I haven't make, been making quite as much. Uh, Darrington Evans uh, as the pass catcher and backup to Derrick Henry in Tennessee. Ido Smith playing behind you know what I do believe is an injury-prone Todd Gurley, or at least an injury risk in Todd Gurley. Yeah. And then LaMichael Pirine. For all the doubts that I have about Le'Veon Bell, Pirine seems like the guy who would be poised to eventually take over in that backfield but to be fair I, I typically haven't drafted him much he's just an intriguing name to me that's that's always in my consideration whether I pull the trigger or not um, any other names in this vein you want to throw out just as uh, kind of honorable mentions to DeAndre Washington because I do think his price is going to start creeping up yeah I, I think it probably will so uh, once that inevitably happens it wouldn't be like the last round but I do agree with you that Chase Edmonds is worthy he's not he's not a last round type guy he'd be more like 14, 15, 16, somewhere in there. But I think because of the potential for him, I am okay with that cost being a little bit higher. I think that Anthony McFarland is also kind of in that same range just because it's a contract year for James Conner. We don't know what the situation is going to shake out for him. Semi-ambiguous backfield on a good team. So Anthony McFarland is also someone, again, not late, not the last round, like he's not a 20th round pick, but around that range, I want to get guys who are in kind of, ambiguous situations and like there is at least some unknown in that backfield for sure any other big picture running back strategy you want to impart to the listeners before we sign off here jim i think i've just grown really fond of like the modified zero rb approach and like when i say that i mean it's it's not zero rb at all because you're you're drafting one in the first round but i like getting a running back or potentially too early you know like maybe you go uh, Alvin Kamara and Kenyon Drake or something like that or Austin Eckler and then just totally hammering 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 wide receiver because like the third round receivers this year I think are awesome so I think to me I'm gonna have a lot of drafts where I have a first round running back maybe a second round running back but then I'm just hammering wide receiver after that because I think that with the way that the draft positions have shake, shaken out this year it just seems like those second third fourth fifth round wide receivers are really hard to pass up right now. Yeah, I'm fully on board with that, and that's become my default strategy is to start with one or two running backs and then just really go hard after wide receivers because, like you said, those third to fifth rounds is just a wide receiver haven. There's so many good options in there. Even if players you like get drafted, there are going to be other players that you like still available, whereas that's not the case with the running backs in the early rounds. If you pass on one in round one, the opportunity cost of doing that is that you're downgrading from you know one of those potential bell cows to someone like Austin Eckler or like Josh Jacobs where I mean the the bell cow upside is there but it's just not quite as locked in those teams aren't quite as good again we talked about targeting good teams earlier and that that is important to me and that's why those first round picks are so valuable if you can land the right running back the last thing I want to say is spread out your risk across different teams as well as across different players within the same backfields we've talked about which running backs we prefer on certain teams, and it's okay to plant your flag with a specific player when you truly believe that they're an underpriced difference maker in fantasy. But in general, I think that we're better served when we admit to not knowing how things are going to play out and diversifying across a wide range of running backs 
who could come into value during the season. So in some leagues, you're going to want to draft Cam Akers, but in others, you're going to want to draft Daryl Henderson. In yeah. some leagues, I'm going to want to draft DeAndre Swift, but that doesn't mean I should be unwilling to draft Carrion Johnson in a league where I miss on Swift and Carrion just keeps falling and falling and falling. Because what if I'm wrong? And so that's the last piece of advice I want to impart here. Um, Jim, thank you very much for joining me today. It's always great having you on the show. Why don't you let listeners know where they can find you on social media and where they can find your stuff. Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Jim Sanes, J-I-M-S-A-N-N-E-S. All my work is over at numberfire.com. Um, our rankings are now free on the site. Uh, mine, JJ Zacharyson's, and Brandon Gadula's all live up on the site whenever you want to consume them. So uh, have at them, yell at me about them, whatever you choose. They are at your disposal. Very cool. Well, thanks again, Jim. Listeners, if you want to follow me, you can find me on Twitter at Greg Sauce. I've got one more episode left of the Most Accurate Podcast before I opt out for the 2020 season. So until then, get over to 444.com, subscribe, and enter for that chance to win entry into the FFPC main event. A bunch of other great prizes there, potentially. Check out manscaped.com. Use the promo code TMAP. And we'll catch you next week to talk wide receivers with the great Rich Rebar. Until then, thanks for listening to the Most Accurate Podcast. Adios. Adios.